From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. Here's an inescapable fact. If you want to talk about the climate crisis, you've got to talk about cities. By 2050, two-thirds of humanity is expected to live in urban areas. And importantly for those of us who care about global warming, cities consume two-thirds of the world's energy, and they're responsible for 70% of global CO2 emissions. Later on in the program, we're going to take a trip to Oslo, which is one of the greenest cities on the planet. We're going to see what they've done and how it might be replicated elsewhere in the world. But first, we turn to Peter Calthorpe. He's a pioneer of sustainable urban design. Way back in 1983, he founded his own design consulting firm in San Francisco. And over the years, he's worked on projects all around the world, from the U.S. to China and Mexico. He's concerned not just with individual buildings, but with the very fabric of urban life and how that contributes to our own well-being and also to the climate crisis. He also is a founding member of the Congress on New Urbanism, which promotes more sustainable urban areas. So I read that the charter for the Congress of the New Urbanism, that it hangs on the wall in your office there in the Bay Area. And I'm wondering, you know, for people who aren't familiar with urbanism and new urbanism as an idea, um, what does that charter say in essence? And what does it mean to be an urbanist in, you know, the year 2020? What the charter says is that since World War II, we uh, headed off on an experiment of a brave new world centered around um, automobiles, freeways, single-use zoning, a paradigm of the suburbs, uh, i.e. the American dream, that has become increasingly dysfunctional, both in terms of environmental impacts and in terms of uh, social and economic opportunity. It's an environment as of 2008 with the financial crisis, which was really embedded in the fact that a lot of middle-class America couldn't afford that American dream and didn't want to drive that far to get to it, that there's been an increasing mismatch between what we really want, what we can really sustain uh, environmentally and economically, and what we've been in the habit of building. So sprawl is the vice, it's the problem, and it's a global problem. We have sprawl in China by huge super blocks that have 10-story buildings. You'd think the density was urban, but there's no walkability, there's no mixed use, there's no urban vitality. It's none of the synergy that makes a great urban environment. The truth of the matter is you can have great urbanism at any density. A small town where kids can freely walk from Elm Street to Main Street, if you want to call it that, and parents can get on an old-fashioned streetcar or these days a light rail line instead of getting in a car and ending up in a parking lot. These are all the big differences, and they have to do with real choices we make in terms of infrastructure, in terms of the vision of how we want to live. New Urbanism tried to articulate it and basically write down some very simple prescriptions for how to get to a better man-made environment. What are the ways that cities, you know, in this conversation about how we live in metropolitan areas, like how does that contribute to the problem of climate change and, and how could it also be used to leverage solutions? So spreading out is destructive in three big ways. One, by displacing nature. The second, by increasing the amount of automobile travel we end up with. And third, by kind of mandating buildings that are inherently less efficient in terms of energy and water consumption. 
But beyond all that, I'm always most interested in what I call co-benefits. If you solve for one dimension of the equation, even something as important as climate change, you are kind of missing the opportunity to solve many problems simultaneously. So take, for example, affordability. Here in California, we have a, a housing crisis. We don't have enough housing for our workforce. Used to be that people would just drive farther and farther into the Central Valley to get cheap single-family homes. And the penalty, of course, was time away from family, time away from community, time away from oneself, effectively, uh, as well as the environmental impact. So a better urban environment that builds on infill sites and adds more transit solves a social need and an economic need for effectively a better lifestyle. And so when you can solve multiple crises at the same time, if you can solve affordable housing, transportation, and climate change with one strategy, that strategy has a lot more potence. I mean, it seems like we have these cities in the U.S. and in Asia, in parts of Latin America that, you know, are sprawling and are concrete and are in place. And so how do you how do you begin to make those shifts and who who decides, I guess? Yeah. And most developers now know from their surveys that people would choose a smaller house that's closer to the important things in their lives than a bigger house on a large lot that's more distant. So that's the jury's in on that. The problem, of course, is we have legacy planning and land use policies that stand in the way. I think this one giant opportunity, at least in the United States, for how to solve this, which is we, as we built suburbs, built a grid of arterials, you know, the five and six lane roads that uh, nobody wants to live on that are in many cases lined by strip commercial, big old shopping centers with parking lots and single story buildings. That's the land that we can now re-inhabit and redevelop into mixed use projects turn those arterials into transit boulevards because they got plenty of space for everything. Good sidewalks, good bike lanes, new transit ways, mostly bus rapid transit is the most cost effective, trees, uh, and uh, of course you can still have the cars even. So you get these ribbons of urbanism carving through all of suburbia, providing yet another kind of lifestyle opportunity even in those areas that you think of as kind of categorically sprawl. I know you've worked on projects, you know, in the U.S. and China, like in in various parts of the world. Like, what are some of the success stories? Like, are there cities that have have reinvented themselves in that way and become more climate friendly as a result? It's interesting. We spent 10 years working in China Their national land use policy now calls for transit-oriented development, mixed use, human-scale city blocks, walkable streets, all sorts of things they didn't have in their first kind of explosion of urban growth. I'm glad you brought up the size of city blocks because it's sort of surprising to me that this idea of how big your block is would influence, you know, your energy footprint. Well, just think about it. The average block in China was super block, used to be around 400 to 500 meters per side. You know, that would hold over 5,000 units of housing. 
And because the streets were spaced so far apart, every street had to be huge and was therefore inhospitable to pedestrians and bikes. You know, the death of the bicycle in China is well known now for that period. So giant streets and giant blocks led to the complete demise of human scale and to a certain degree of community. People didn't know each other in these super blocks. They couldn't recognize who was supposed to be there or not. So they started gating them, making the situation even worse. Uh, we had gated subdiv subdivisions. They had gated super blocks. Uh, same end result, which is that people tended to use cars coming and going. Um, now there's a mandate for around a 100-meter city block average. That's, that's an average old historic town center scale in the United States, around 320 feet square blocks and all of a sudden you get more streets and therefore each street can be smaller and more human scale and more hospitable to all the things that really should happen on streets such as walking and biking and sitting in cafes as opposed to what can happen on eight lanes at the edge of a gated super block. We now work with standards there that call for green streets. Remember they're you know they're now pushing towards maybe 30% of households owning a car, unlike us, where every household owns a car. Uh, and so there's still a great need for streets that are just there with, for, without cars, period. They're just there for the 70% of the population that doesn't own a car. So they're walking or on a bus or on a bike. Hmm. Historically in China, the old wet and dry markets, the places where people met and had local commerce, uh, they're coming back in the form of these green streets. Um, so you have a, a you know, pretty popular TED talk. And right at the top, you cite this statistic that we need to build cities that will house three billion additional people. So this massive expansion of the, the cities that already exist. Um, how do you think about that future in which, you know, there are going to be many more people and a lot of them living in urban environments? You know, it's the classic saying, which is never let a crisis go unused. Uh, sustainable cities and regions are the solution to so many of our problems. And so, you know, the fact that we are going to be building that much means that we can reshape existing suburbs, that we can revitalize urban centers, that we can get it right effectively. And in many places that is happening. It's, and don't forget running in tandem with all this is the decline in global poverty. I mean, I think it was back in the 50s, 40% of the global population was uh, in extreme mm -hmm. poverty. And now it's well under 10%. Uh, and a lot of that happened in China because they moved people to cities. When people move to cities, they have economic opportunities. Their fertility rates drop, and so our population comes back into balance. Women have opportunities they don't have in the countryside. Education flourishes, public services. All these things start to happen. So on a social level, the city really can be the great medicine for the kind of poverty that, that mankind has lived with most of its history. You know, what about... Um like some of the some of the most rapidly growing cities in the world are in Africa and other parts of the developing world. 
you know, in a place where there isn't money being spent on those other programs that you mentioned that could be diverted into to smarter cities, like, what do you think the plan should be there? You know, we did a big regional plan for Mexico City, which is kind of uh, at the high end of the, um, you know, developing economies, uh, but still has massive poverty. I call it low-income sprawl. Um, in, in the United States, the higher-income population moved to the suburbs, away from the city. In much of the developing world, the wealthy stay at the city center near the historic cultural assets and and job centers, and the poor pushed more and more to the periphery. Um, so I think the same urban paradigm or metropolitan paradigm works there as it does just about anywhere, which is you need more transit, especially for those low-income populations that don't own cars. You need to decentralize jobs in ways that make them accessible to everybody without a huge burden. Some of the average commutes one way in Mexico or three hours. You need to solve the housing crisis for the low-income population through things called sites and services. Let people build their own place, but give them land security and give them uh, rights of ways with utilities so that the sewer's not running open in the street and water is accessible and power is accessible. It's not that expensive to do. World Bank has experimented with it. In many cases, it's been quite successful. But it does, once again, take investment. We just have to invest in the right things. There are plenty of solutions out there, plenty, on every level. Uh, We just have to decide to allocate money and energy to them. Um, The entrenched wealth and forces that we're up against are powerful and Uh, we just have to be very clear that this is going to be a long battle, uh, not an easy win. Peter Calthorpe is a San Francisco-based architect and a leading global voice on designing climate-smart cities. A changing climate presents humanity really with only one option, adapt. Join host Doug Parsons for America Adapts, a podcast in which Doug interviews scientists, activists, policymakers, and journalists, including myself to discuss how society is going to adapt to the perils of a warmer future, from rising seas to droughts and storms. You can find America Adapts on your favorite podcast apps or visit americaadapts.org. So what is the best case scenario for what a green city might look like? Well, you could do worse than to look towards Oslo, the capital of Norway. In autumn 2019, the European Commission launched an ambitious target of zero emissions by 2050. Well, this Scandinavian capital is well ahead of the curve. Already, Oslo is only 10 years from that goal. Our reporter Preeti Nalu traveled to Europe's 2019 green capital to see firsthand what Oslo is getting right and what it can teach the rest of us. The sounds of digging, tilling, and potting come from an unlikely venue. This is an herb garden. Uh, where we have some herbs and some flowers, but we also have a, a bigger rooftop garden on the 14th. I'm on the rooftop of the Clarion Hotel in the heart of Oslo, the capital of Norway, watching Anna Carlson rake in soil despite the persistent drizzle of rain. Behind her, the main train station is buzzing with commuters. Anna has been a full-time urban farmer over the past year, 
A far cry from her old office job as an environmental lobbyist. It's good, you know, I've been sitting in an office in front of the computer for many years. Yeah. So, you know, going at a more physical lifestyle is, uh, yeah. Flanked by the looming Nordic clouds and dressed in a windbreaker and gum boots, she looks ready for a forest hike. But it's just another workday for Anna, as she tends to the microgreens that supply three sizable restaurants and bars of the hotel, that is wedged between corporate offices and commercial streets. Down below in the hotel lobby, tourists are lugging suitcases through the revolving doors. Anna's colleague, Andreas Capion, sits down for a conversation, a comfortable misfit in the flashy reception area. Hanging over worn jeans, his sweatshirt proudly displays the word farmer in Norwegian. Indeed, Andreas inherited farming as an ancestral occupation. But over the past years, it's transformed into a vocation. I genuinely believe that our wasting of food is connected with our distance from the soil, yeah? Because when my grandmother, her generation, 95% of the Norwegian population had their own personal experiences in growing food. Now it's 2%, two generations later. And during the same period of time, we've started throwing away a third of our food, and that is connected. Andre started small with a city garden that produces vegetables and hosts community dinners with the help of its members. It became a cradle of urban farming and the slow food movement in Oslo. As an urban farmer employed in a Norwegian farmers union, that was my job, to inspire as many as possible to, to grow our cities green and edible. Yeah? The building of this culture embedded in a larger green economy has itself been a slow-moving process. Like the garden, the hotel project has been a success in terms of production. What we have done here at the hotel is to see whether we on a very small uh, plot of land, 250 square meters, can grow enough and sell it to market prices and live from it. And the answer to that question is yes, we can. We can pay uh, our gardener to do this. So that's an area of just under 2,700 square feet, about three-fourths the size of a basketball court. Andreas and Anna have been growing microgreens in the small space, stacking them on top of each other and harvesting four to six times a year. And when standing on the 14th floor of the hotel, we face 1.5 billion square feet of unused rooftops. For Andreas and those helping transform the densest parts of the city, rooftops, backyards and even basements are empty plots of land that ought to be used. And wouldn't that be beautiful? Such transformation, he points out, requires a shift of attitude. In fact, a shift of culture. I've worked with city dwellers throughout many years, yeah, and you can see a change in them. I mean, just that realization of how long it takes from you put your tomato seed in March inside, what you need to do, bringing it in and out, planning for watering during summer, etc. I've also experienced a change of the people who are interested in this. In Oslo's case, the success is as much the result of a social-political movement as individual efforts. Here in Oslo, people like Anna and Andreas are spearheading the larger fight to abate climate change through a combination of lobbying and literally getting their hands dirty. As they innovate for the future, their experiments provide important insights for 800 million people around the world engaged in urban agriculture to meet daily needs. 
architecture and design play a crucial role in the city's efforts to bring together the lived and natural environments, according to Mariana Satre, a senior architect at the Oslo-based firm Snöhette. A lot of the projects that Snöhette is working with is dealing with the architecture in relation to landscapes and nature, and we find landscapes everywhere, even in the dense city. So one example is the opera. Exiting the central station, a stone's throw away from the opera house and on the banks of the Oslo Fjord, I'm amid some of the most diverse flora and fauna in the country. The building itself is a leading example of green architecture. Sublime music drifts out and travels to the communal baths along the waterfront. Over the winter, the sloping sides of the building pile up with snow, serving as ramps for snowboarders. It's a spatial emotional experience that makes you feel that you belong somewhere. And we think that's sustainable in itself. But then, of course, you have all other kinds of aspects, like uh, reducing the carbon footprint, using um, solid, uh, durable materials. And then, of course, we have a positive, uh, energy positive projects. Like in Trondheim, we just uh, opened up uh, one of our first buildings that are um, energy producing. It's just one step on your way to be carbon negative. Given this holistic approach, it's not surprising to meet Mariana at a gathering of anthropologists and urban planners. Welcome to the world, the world needs anthropologists to standing cities. Hosted by the European Association of Social Anthropologists and the University of Oslo, the conference is among the hundreds of local and EU-wide efforts initiated by the municipality. The different specialists spend their days exploring new approaches to designing cities. It's an honor to be here and I'm really amazed by this uh, big crowd. Following the conference, I meet Mariana in her element, at her office that is a refurbished warehouse in the city's main harbour. We like to have this big open space where we collaborate with each other. With doors large enough for trucks to pass, the office is vast yet intimate with a vibrant colour scheme and an open floor plan. Wall-sized windows line up to face the port with large ferries arriving and departing. I'm looking at the most environmentally friendly waterway in Europe. While clear consistent policies have steered such developments, gathering the political will is much more complicated, says Mariana. So right now, there are a lot of interests trying to understand the existing regulations to force um, sustainable solutions. Maybe this is a, a place where anthropologists could help out to see how can we create a great environment for collaboration. Because this is really maybe sometimes the challenge that you have developers, policymakers, politicians and engineers and architects coming together up front. Oslo is an optimal laboratory for experimentation because of its small population, wealth and ample space. But Norway is hardly representative of the wider world. The big question is whether these initiatives can be scaled to size and applied in major cities elsewhere, especially in the global south. To find out how, I visited Thomas Hilland Eriksson, an anthropologist at the University of Oslo. In Norway, there are few of us. 
uh, it's a fairly cohesive society with very little by way of social conflict. People pay their taxes, uh, there is a le high level of trust in you know, the educational system, in the health services, so it's not directly comparable at all to cities, say, in Global South or even in the UK. Indeed, the city of Oslo has a special climate budget with 42 separate measures across different sectors. This would be difficult for crisis-ridden European capitals like Athens and unfathomable for huge stratified cities like Mumbai or Cairo. Given these disparities, thinking globally and acting locally seems to be the only practical approach. It's important to cut this down to a scale which is manageable and which is human. I probably cannot save the world, but maybe I can save, you know, this clump of tree or this little river. And if everybody does it in the same way, communities worldwide will make a collective contribution to making the world a better place for our descendants. With such a global contribution in mind, Norway has invested public funds in distant parts of the world, through information sharing between researchers in Norway and those from countries in the global south. One area where there is a direct kind of a transfer of knowledge between Oslo and many parts of the world would be in public transportation, in fossil-free mobility. Dan Bainik, originally from India, who works at the Centre for Development and Environment at the University of Oslo, has been a bridge between these worlds. Speaking from Malawi, where he works part of the year, Dan has noticed increased curiosity in exchanges between the so-called developed parts of the world and those that are still developing, particularly in the area of sustainability. I see a fantastic new development, particularly in Africa. Certain cities like Nairobi, like Lagos, like Kigali, they are adopting some of these um, solutions coming from the global north, like um, electric bikes, like introducing uh, car-free or motorcycle-free zones. Dan points out that while remedies such as alternative means of transport can catch on quickly, a larger behavioural change is much more challenging in countries with economic disparities. The trouble so far has been that there really isn't a proper, well-functioning public transportation system. Uh, you can't talk about electric cars because only 10% of the population is connected to the grid and even that 10% gets electricity for three or four hours a day. Um, on the other hand, there are many citizens actually wanting much more of an emphasis and investment in solar uh, and more renewable energy sources. But shifting to these sources as the main means will again require that shift in attitude towards the environment, especially in urban centres where consumption is the highest. What has been particularly interesting in Norway and in Oslo is that this green culture has been extremely participatory. So citizens have been actively involved. There is greater ownership in promoting the idea that this is good for you, the green lifestyle is the way to go. Oslo's success stems from essential prerequisite conditions. Continuing to create jobs that feed into green growth, investing in sustainable development, and a culturally ingrained love for the outdoors. But the city's reign as the European green capital is coming to a close. It now falls to its successor, Portugal's capital, Lisbon, to set an example the world can begin to follow. This is Preeti Fox Nalu in Oslo. Next week on Heat of the Moment, we travel to Morocco and get an up-close look at a solar energy project that's a game-changer for North Africa and beyond. Because there was no precedent 
to Norway as that. It was difficult to get investors, to get projects financed easily. But now with this demonstration, it makes it uh, possible for everyone that they see it, that solar power can be part of the future of energy uh, production. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the Climate Investment Funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.